Welcome to JSLX Conversations, a new podcast produced by the Journal of Social Linguistics. These open access conversations about timely issues in the field revolve around a recently published book or other academic contributions. In this first episode, Professor Monica Heller from the University of Toronto and former editor-in-chief of this journal will meet Dr. Guillermo Fionge from the University of St. Andrews to discuss the social linguistic issues raised by his new monograph, Esperanto Revolutionaries and Geeks, Language Politics, Digital Media and the Making of an International Community. So welcome, Guillermo. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Let me first introduce you to the uh, to the audience. So Dr. Guillermo Fianz is an anthropologist currently working as a Leeuwenhoek Research Fellow at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's also co-director of the Center for Research and Documentation on World Language Problems, headquartered in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. We're here to talk about his recent book, Esperanto Revolutionaries and Geeks, Language Politics, Digital Media, and the Making of an International Community, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2021. This book focuses on fieldwork with groups of speakers of a constructed language called Esperanto. Guillermo did his fieldwork both face-to-face in Paris and online, looking at language use and how people from different generations link this constructed language with distinct political perspectives. This is a field which is often dismissed as marginal, and yet which recently has begun to receive more scholarly attention, especially among historians, but also among anthropologists and sociolinguists. So Guillermo, tell me, how did you get interested in Esperanto in the first place? Hi, Monica, thanks for the introduction. So my interest in Esperanto started in 2009 when I was about to start doing my BA in social sciences at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And at the beginning of my degree, I was interested mostly in anthropology and political science. And by coincidence, at that time, a friend of my grandmother, who used to write books in Esperanto, decided to donate her entire collection of Esperanto books to me. And then at some point, I had three shelves of books in my house in a language that I couldn't read. And I didn't know much about that language. And I, when I started doing my BA, by coincidence again, there was a free Esperanto course next to my university campus. And then I decided to enroll and started learning Esperanto. And I had no plans of becoming fluent or anything like that. But I was curious about the existence of this language that made me think of languages more seriously for the first time. Because Rio de Janeiro is a very monolingual place. There are very few people speaking other languages. So I was not very often confronted with this idea in practice of people having to switch from one language to another. And the moment I started studying Esperanto was the first time that I came across people who tried to do this outside the scope of a language course. And this is the moment when I started asking myself a couple of questions about this language and this speech community. So how, how did it turn into an anthropological research question? Or maybe you know, I should ask, what, what was the question that emerged for you and how did it turn into uh, a PhD project and eventually a book? 
So when I started doing my Esperanto course, I, I was curious because I came across a bit more than 20 people who were learning Esperanto with me and who were attending other informal gatherings at the Esperanto Association just to improve their language skills, to socialize and to like to buy books in Esperanto, you know that? And these people, my course mates, they kept talking about the Universal Congresses of Esperanto that take place every year since 1905. They, most of them were members of the World Esperanto Association in the Netherlands. And they all talked about the possibility of contacting people from all over the world through Esperanto. And they emphasized a lot the idea that they felt as if they had become citizens of the world after learning this language. But at the same time, mostly most of these people, they were from the working classes. They didn't speak any other language aside from Portuguese and Esperanto. They never traveled abroad. They talked about the possibility of having friends from other countries, but they didn't really do that. They didn't exchange letters or emails or anything like this with Esperanto speakers from other countries. And because of their economic condition, and because of their travel history, they never attended any of these universal congresses and they didn't have any concrete plans of ever doing this. And then I started wondering, why are they learning Esperanto? And every time I asked them this question, they came up with these answers of, because I like the language, because it makes me feel like a citizen of the world and all that, but they didn't really use the language for the purpose of international communication as Esperanto was meant to be used for. And I started asking these questions in Brazil when I started my Esperanto course. And by the time I finished my undergraduate degree and my master's, I still haven't found a proper answer for these questions. And that's the moment when I decided to look for these answers myself through the perspective of cultural social anthropology. But then I went to look for these answers, not in Brazil anymore, but this time in France. And well, I guess two questions, why France? Uh, but also what would you say was the, so what's the anthropological question you were asking in your field work uh, around the Paris-based group? Mm -hmm. uh, so just to give more context to the audience, uh, Sperante was created in the late 19th century in the Russian Empire. And when Esperanto was created, the first wave of speakers of Esperanto were mostly pacifists in the Russian Empire. Most of them were Tolstoyans. And one decade later, after Esperanto was created, Esperanto gained momentum in Western Europe, not in Eastern Europe anymore. And this happened mostly in France. And in 1905, 1904, Paris became some sort of powerhouse for the Esperanto speaking community. And there were a lot of Esperanto associations being created, a lot of gatherings taking place every week, and Esperanto courses being taught everywhere in Paris simultaneously. And wh why was that? So that's a very good question. Uh, because mostly Esperanto in Paris, in France in general, became attractive for intellectuals and businessmen. And they were using Esperanto to propagate their causes and discuss scientific issues to produce knowledge in general, 
and also to trade with people from other countries. So they had more, let's say, practical uses of the language, and they wanted to make it work in practice. And but why would that be true for intellectuals and and merchants, bourgeoisie in Paris, and not say in London or in Berlin or other parts of of Europe? So one of the things that facilitated this spread of Esperanto in France was the fact that the publishing house Hachette started publishing most of the Esperanto books at the time, and most of these books were produced in France. Were like gaining visibility in French bookshops. And a lot of people in France started to realize that this language existed. And so you were looking so for a place where there was a long history of involvement in Esperanto to see what happens, what's the situation now? Was that what, what attracted you to Paris? Yeah, in part it was. I uh, When I was trying to find answers to explain the Esperanto speakers I met in Brazil, I started reading a lot of books and articles, some of them in Esperanto, some of them in English, some others in Portuguese or French. These are the languages I can read that about the history of Esperanto, about how the language became widespread in certain places and not others, for example. And all these books and articles emphasized the spread of Esperanto in France a lot. And that made me curious, but mostly because of the transformation of the profile of Esperanto speakers in France over time. And I had this historical perspective in mind and also thinking about the fact that when I was in Brazil, uh, that perhaps Esperanto nowadays in France is not as popular as it used to be a hundred years ago. And I wanted to go there and see if that was the case or not. Because another interesting wave of Esperanto speakers right after the intellectuals and the bourgeoisie in France was that with the beginning of the First World War uh, and these whole ideas behind Esperanto about promoting more egalitarian communication of being a language that is no one's first language and because it can belong to anyone. Uh, ideas behind Esperanto soon called that of socialists, communists, anarchists. And then I was curious, and that was my main research question in my book, uh, about the political relevance of Esperanto now in the 21st century, 100 years after this boom of Esperanto speakers in France. And what did you find? Yeah, so I was um, always thinking, always had in mind this perspective that most of us have or that I had myself before learning more about the language, that Esperanto was like that invented language that no one speaks anymore, that language that failed and so on. And when I started meeting Esperanto speakers in France, when I started doing my fieldwork, I had the opposite impression that the Esperanto speaking community was much more active than I imagined. And maybe not as active as back in the day, as 100 years later, but maybe active in a different way that couldn't be perceived directly through face-to-face -face fieldwork. And this is one of the things that caught my attention the most in my first approach, because they still held uh, meetings every week. They still had many Esperanto classes going on in some places in the city. There were four Esperanto associations in Paris, and still the same thing. And I finished my fieldwork 
four years ago. So the forest situations are still there. But then there were these frontal speakers who were there attending these meetings and these classes, just as there were Esperanto speakers learning the language online. And some of them were a couple of blocks from these associations, but they never went to these face-to-face -face meetings. And then I had the perception that perhaps Esperanto is not as connected to anarchism and socialism as it was in the past, but there are still people speaking the language and they are concentrated nowhere in the world because Esperanto is not an official language or customarily used language anywhere. But at the same time, they're kind of everywhere. So are these two separate groups of people, the revolutionaries who show up to the meetings and who associate Esperanto with particular uh, forms of, of uh, let's say, left-wing political movements, socialism, anarchism, pacifism, um, and this other set of people who uh, essentially participate, create a, a kind of a discursive space for Esperanto online? Yeah, so most of them are different people. I, I wouldn't say they are two groups that are entirely separate because there are some overlaps. And there are many other groups that wouldn't fit these two categories, let's say. But those numerically speaking seem to be the most present groups during my fieldwork. And of course, I did my fieldwork mostly in France. So here I'm talking about Esperanto speakers in France. And I'm fully aware that in other countries, the profiles would be a bit different. Also because the history of Esperanto in other countries are different. And people decide to learn the language for different reasons. So is the first group the group that of that you call in your title revolutionaries, mm -hmm. and the second group the group that you call geeks? Yeah, the, these ideas of revolutionaries and geeks are basically the two settings, let's say, the two labels for the settings where I found most Esperanto speakers during my fieldwork. And going to the Esperanto associations to attend these face-to-face -face meetings, for example, two of these associations held weekly debates. Most of them were about political issues to discuss nuclear energy or revolutions in Asia or dictatorships in Latin America and all that. And they held all these discussions in Esperanto. And their idea was to use the language to create some sort of nonpartisan space where many activists supporting different causes would meet. And age-wise, most of these people in the associations were the Soissantuita, those people who took part in the revolutions in France in 1968, or those people who felt some kind of connection with that kind of activism from that period. And the idea was that some of these people were very active in the French Communist Party. Some others lived in a commune. And some others were members of the Socialist Party. Some others were federalists or environmentalists. Mm -hmm. And they always held similar discussions about similar topics within their groups and political parties and social movements. But Esperanto would give them the possibility of gathering and discussing these things with left-leaning activists who don't necessarily share the same perspective who are not necessarily interested in the same political stances. And, and the geeks? Yeah, the geeks were in general absent from these face-to-face -face meetings. Mm -hmm. but and what was then, their interest? 
What, why, what were they trying to do? Mm -hmm. So the, the idea is that most of these geeks I came across during my field work, they learned the language online and continued using the language online. Because in 2015, Duolingo, that famous uh, language learning platform, created an Esperanto course initially available only in English, but also nowadays available in French and Mandarin and Portuguese and Spanish. And also this, this course in Don Ligo helped to create the first generations of, let's say, online Esperanto speakers, of these people who learn the language online and usually stay online. And the, the ones I met in Paris and in France in general, were mostly brought to Esperanto because of an interest in open source software. Because the idea was that Esperanto is no one's language. That means that I, since I'm clearly not a native speaker of English, I'm not exactly allowed to wordplay in English. Because if I wordplay, sometimes my interlocutors will, make, will think that I'm making a mistake or something like this. And since I'm not a native speaker of English, I'm not allowed to suggest a new word or propose some different way of saying something because again, people will think that I'm making a mistake. And with Esperanto, since no one can claim that this is my language and not yours, the idea is that this language can be adopted and used and developed by anyone. So this has a lot of things to do with the functioning of open source software precisely because of the idea that with proprietary software, you cannot change the software. You can only use it. You cannot distribute it. And with open source, if you are unhappy with some aspects of the software, you can propose a change. You can change it yourself. So would, would you say that what the two groups have in common nonetheless is precisely an interest in the commons and in a kind of a democratic participation in um, in the discursive spaces of of social life in different ways with different labels on different terrains, but they seem to have that in common. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the arguments I present in the book, that what brings them together is the fact that they see this language as a way of building a commons, of being together and creating something together in a space that is more or less horizontal, that is relatively egalitarian compared to other computer programming languages or other human languages. And they use Esperanto as part of their way of materializing their political stances. So would you say, I guess, what, or what would you say are the other main arguments that you're trying to put forward in the book? So what, one is that Esperanto serves as a place for constructing the commons in I'm putting words in your mouth here, but in a kind of a utopian, uh, or at least a struggle towards utopia, social movement kind of way. What what else do you think? What what else do we need to take away from your book? So another thing that interested me a lot when I started my fieldwork, as I came to notice this, was this generational cleavage in the Esperanto speaking community, because for the Esperanto speakers who attend these face-to-face -face meetings, most of them regret that Esperanto is losing strength, that no one connects the language with politics anymore, and the space of sociability that they try to nurture for so many decades is disappearing. And they go to these meetings 
in a way a bit disheartened seeing that the language the meetings not gathering as many people as it used to do in the past and at the same time they are aware that other people are learning and using the language online but they don't see these online users as the same group as them they don't see many commonalities there mm -hmm. so it's a language that they both speak a language that's supposed to bring the world together but in a way a language that has its community separated by age groups and by generations. But ironic, ironically, precisely because they don't share a discursive space. I mean, it sounds like they share a whole lot if they only knew that about each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say are like, you know, the big sociolinguistic questions that your, your work addresses? So in terms of sociolinguistics, I discuss a lot the idea of language ideologies, mm -hmm. because roughly speaking, in Brazil, as in France, people would usually see uh, English as a language that would open doors for them in terms of professional opportunities, in terms of career. And compared to that, Esperanto wouldn't open many doors. And Esperanto is something else for them. But at the same time, they see it as a language to socialize, to get to know people who would think the same way as they do, to create some sort of safe space in which they can do their activism, they can make friends, and they can feel that they belong to create this community. And from this idea that Esperanto is the basis of this community, Esperanto is what brings them together, and is the language that belongs to anyone, they use this language of uh, this language ideology behind Esperanto also to fuel language variation because part of this use of the language online revolves around creating new words or word playing and most of the time creating memes <coughs> and emojis just to use Esperanto in a creative way and to have fun out of that because Esperanto is what it is for them it's supposed to be fun so is it also supposed to be a kind of an anti-standard language stance yeah in a ways a language that is against hierarchies that mm -hmm. is creates a space that is detached from the other experiences they have in their daily lives. So when they are in an Esperanto meeting or using Esperanto online, it is as if they are creating a space in which they can do things they cannot do in their workplace, for example, or at school or at a university. To what extent would you say these are actually um accessible diverse spaces then because if the idea is that this doesn't belong to anybody then surely we should get a pretty broad spectrum of people involved mm -hmm. yeah so uh, an interesting quote about this that in one of my interviews during field work was that one of my interlocutors told me that uh, anyone can learn Esperanto potentially speaking Many people won't choose to do it because they have other needs and they need to, let's say, improve their skills in their mother tongue, or maybe learn an, a foreign language like English for professional purposes, something like this. But the fact that Esperanto is easy and accessible doesn't mean that everyone will make the decision at the same time to learn it just for fun, just out of pleasure. So then the idea is that for this person, Esperanto still 
gathers around it a specific profile of people, a group of people who want to build alternatives or to do something different, to do something else. And people who, for example, have some kind of speech disabilities and feel discriminated when they speak in other languages. And they see the Esperanto speaking community as a specially welcoming place. And Esperanto may be for everyone, potentially speaking, but at the same time, in practice, we all know it's not like this. Because then, for example, to attend this Universal Congress of Esperanto, which each year take place in a different country, uh, you need to apply for visas. You need to have money to cross the world in an airplane. And you need to be healthy enough to be able to eat different kinds of foods and having to face like very long trips in the airplane and all that. Sometimes not only one airplane, but more than one involving buses and many other kinds of transportation. And visas, for example, are something that brings Peranto down to, to earth again. Because then you see in this last Universal Congress of Esperanto this year in Canada, for example, that many Esperanto speakers from Iran applied for the Canadian visa and didn't get it. So there were no Esperanto speakers from Iran attending the conference. And this is something that also always affects Esperanto speakers from African countries, for example. At the same time, I mean, you and I met up there in Montreal. One of the things I commented on at one point was I looked around and I saw, uh, it seemed like a very masculine space, uh, whether that was the older generation or the younger generation. Is that typical? So I would say that among the young Esperanto speakers I met in France, it is something relatively typical because if Esperanto is um, gaining ground, mostly among people who are for open source software, who are geeks, who are interested in technologies and so on, then most people who would learn Esperanto, for example, in university settings would be students from mathematics, physics, computer science, and or engineering, computer engineering mostly. And these courses are usually very much male dominated. So in this younger generation, from my experience and my fieldwork in France, I would say it is like this. And for other generations, I, my experience in France was that it was more or less balanced, perhaps more than in the Congress this year. And is there any crossover, any linkages um, among the, the the geeks, so people who are interested in open software, with other conlangers, with with people who essentially are on form these online communities to construct other kinds of languages? Yeah, and they try not only to use these many languages, but also to construct them, as you just said. So many young Esperanto speakers are also speakers of Tokipona or Globasa, mm -hmm. and they see clear overlaps between their interests in one language and another. And also, talking again about the geeks, uh, they try to co-construct, let's say, co-develop Esperanto the same way as they try to co-develop some software. And they create an app for Esperanto speakers to locate each other through, through the GPS of the mobile phone. And the same way that they translated some uh, websites and apps like Telegram, like Facebook, and the entire interface of Firefox, for example, into Esperanto. So they see a lot of overlaps between computer programming languages and 
human languages that are constructed like, like Esperanto, and they also want to be part of this language development process. So where to next with, I mean, whether, I'm not sure whether you yourself are continuing research in this area, but for sociolinguists, linguistic anthropologists who are, who are interested um, in issues around the commons, around alternative uh, worlds, around um, resistance, uh, the commons, utopias, where where can we take this kind of uh, material? Where can we take this 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 fieldwork area next? In terms of social linguistics and linguistic anthropology, the part that fascinates me the most that I discuss a bit on the book, but I think this is a field that still deserves to be studied, is how language ideologies are connected to language variation, particularly in the case of constructed languages, because. Then, for example, uh, one of the chapters of the book is about this, this moment in the in a meeting in the Esperanto Association in which they wanted to say a specific word in Esperanto, uh, drone. And they didn't know the word for drone in Esperanto because it's a word that even in English was created recently. And instead of checking the dictionary, they decided to come up with a word altogether there. So what kind of authority or perception of authority you have there in terms of language authority uh, when people decide just to ignore the dictionaries the academies and the literature and come up with something else and coin so it opens up questions around linguistic authority around linguistic authenticity around linguistic legitimacy legitimacy of speakers i mean these are classic questions in sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology right mm -hmm. yeah exactly and the case of constructed languages also makes room for these questions to gain more visibility and more centrality, because then you have people who feel uh, entitled to make these changes in the language, and at least potentially or technically, no one can come to them and say, no, you cannot say this, you cannot do this, right. because right. the language is always up for grabs. That's how the language is meant to be according to the creator's will, let's say. So on the one hand, we have some of these classic questions in the field, but married to what is still a, a, a topic of contemporary interest around how people deal with the problem of inequality and, and unequal distribution of resources by trying to create a commons. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So is there, is there anything else you want to add in terms of, of what we should take away from, from your book? So some final words about uh, what can be done about constructed languages in terms of social and cultural anthropology. Something that hasn't been done much so far is research about cosmopolitanism in practice mm -hmm. and how speakers of these languages that are meant to be international uh, juggle internationalist and nationalist stances. Because of course, for example, in the Esperanto speaking community, you have nationalist Esperanto speakers who are proud of their nationality and who don't necessarily get along well with people from certain other nationalities. Mm -hmm. And if this language and this community is supposed to be so internationally oriented, what happens when these clashes take place in practice, either online or face-to-face? -face? Right. Great. So thank you very, very, very much, Guillermo. This is absolutely fascinating. I think we've seen lots of ways in which Esperanto is not some weird marginal thing, uh, but rather a kind of an opening up 
into some really important, really central and contemporary questions in linguistic anthropology and sociolinguistics. Thanks so much. Thank you.